where I'm always impressed by founders and uh, entrepreneurs is where there's a very honest reflection of the challenges and the realities of the market that they're going after. Hello and welcome to Clinical Change Makers, the podcast that explores vital lessons in healthcare leadership, innovation, and so much more. I'm your host, Dr. Jono. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Oliver Keong. He is a medical doctor with vast experience in policy, innovation, and the investment space. Dr. Keon is the managing director and head of Intuitive Ventures. Intuitive Ventures is a venture fund looking to accelerate the future of minimally invasive surgery through their inaugural $100 million fund. So let's begin. Dr. Oliver Keon, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be on. Before we jump into your expertise in the venture capital space, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your background and how you found your way into healthcare. Yeah, happy to share. So my journey started back in the UK. First of all, from a young age, always wanted to go into healthcare. Um, I was kind of passionate about being a doctor, having a career uh, where I could, you know, help patients and the like. I, I didn't actually know much about what that career would, you know, ensue. I didn't have any family members in it, but I was kind of passionate about that as a path. I think being good at, you know, science and and maths was kind of, you know, it was a, a direction I, I was pushed into. Um, and I, I made the move. So I, I went to medical school and um, had the opportunity to learn there. And it was kind of early on in that clinical career, I think, because I got more exposure to the career of medicine that I got quite excited about the entrepreneurial side, kind of how to maybe marriage business with a career in medicine and uh, what that could ultimately look like. And then over the course of um, you know some some various opportunities along the way, I, I've kind of really built a career that spanned uh, some of those policy and you know technology areas with the business. Um, and the um, opportunity to scale healthcare impact uh, in in a different way, and that's brought me from policy to clinical practice to now uh, venture capital um, uh, in in the healthcare space. Were there particular impactful events or experiences that sort of put you into that mindset of what um, businesses and uh, innovation can do in healthcare? I think so. So my, I come from a family of kind of small, medium enterprise, you know, SME runners, you know, a variety of small businesses and and things. And I think being exposed to that from a young age, you know, working to build something kind of always excited me. That was kind of the baseline of how I saw a career path potentially, you know, pursuing. Um, layered on top of getting into clinical medicine and seeing, I think, some of the the kind of senior clinical figures that had balanced a very impactful career being top of their game in the clinical pursuit, but having kind of side projects and initiatives where they might be working or advising uh, companies, um, industry, and seeing that that kind of marriage of these different worlds was so critical to the healthcare ecosystem um, you know, for, for technology and for driving impact. And I think early exposure in medical school to that really ignited in me a passion to find a way to accelerate how I could achieve something similar, you know, maybe impatiently without spending the 30 years to build, you know, the academic uh, pedigree and um, that one, you know, might, might have to. And so uh, that, that brought me into the world of clinical innovation and technology and academia and surgery uh, probably earlier um, than, than I uh, had originally anticipated. And uh, one of your first roles out of the clinical space, you were working as a, a chief of staff um, at an organization. Can you tell me about uh, what that experience was like and, and what you learned? 
Yeah, so I had, um, I, I, as I mentioned, I was kind of looking for an opportunity to, to bridge clinical practice. So I, I did practice for a couple of years um, after medical school, loved it and, um, you know, had, had no downsides to it other than I was kind of being pulled in this other direction towards, you know, quote unquote, something entrepreneurial, not sure what that meant at the time, um, had the opportunity to go and work. Um, yeah, for the Institute of Global Health Innovation and Imperial and worked directly with the, the head of that uh, group in a role that spanned um, really kind of organizing and maintaining the connectivity, the strategy, um, the, the direction of travel that um, the leader of that organization was, was setting. And it was a huge amount of exposure both to, to people and networks, but to different content matters from policy uh, to technology um, to clinical need because it was a, a real deep integration of the institute within the Imperial College Healthcare Trust um, and, and surgical delivery within uh, the London um, uh, kind of NHS. So I, yeah, it was it was just a really unique, pr- pretty fast paced role that gave me broad exposure in a pretty short period of time to different people, uh, you know, different subjects, and um, and uh, yeah, offered me it kind of opened my eyes, I'd say, to to where my career could have gone after that. And what was that transition like? I mean, it can be quite intimidating to to move into other fields when uh, you've been studying medicine for a long time and, and practicing too. How did you navigate that? So it's it's funny. I think something that medicine really prepares you for as a as a discipline as a course is actually resilience and change and getting used to change as being kind of part of the um the the career i think in the in the early years for medical school you're you're constantly being thrown into unique environments different clinical settings different educational kind of uh frameworks as well as you know in the rotational scheme certainly in the uk nhs as a foundation doctor in your first couple of years after practicing you know you're spending six months you know three four six months in different rotations and you know, each time you're jumping into a brand new clinical setting, new teams, new people, new type of working, new subject matter. So I'd say, you know, there's a grounding there that kind of sets you up for flexibility. And I really didn't see the transition into this more administrative role as as too different. You know, it was how can I flex and, you know, into this opportunity? How can I identify the needs that need to be served? How can I add the value uh, that I can bring where is there value to be sought, efficiencies to be gained, all the stuff that I think we're pretty used to doing in clinical medicine, but just applied to a slightly different setting. Uh, so that was, you know, part of it. And then, you know, just a lot of learning on the job. I certainly I'm sure made lots of mistakes along the way, but it was it was fun to, to throw myself into it. So in this kind of new environment, how do you make sure you put your best foot forward and be successful? You know, look, I think in any job, again, whether it's medicine, whether it's policy, Wherever it's otherwise, it's about applying the skills that you've learned historically into an environment of people and subject matter or whatever, and, and trying to identify where one can bring value. There's there's doing the job that's expected of you, and then you should you know hopefully have a sense in your kind of mutual interviewing process. Right, you're being interviewed by someone, you're interviewing them. I always think that's really critical kind of mindset to have whenever you're looking for new opportunity. And then it's about just yeah understanding kind of where you're at and and how you can add value. I, I, something I've always sought in any opportunity. I've been very fortunate to work with some fantastic leaders in my career. In any opportunity I'm going for, is there an opportunity to learn? Is there an opportunity to kind of receive mentorship from people that have experience and credibility and networks that can really add to what I will get out of it, but also kind of de-risk 
the the value I can bring to that situation. And so kind of that is also another foundational, I think, element. And so I was fortunate to work with, you know, variety of great leaders, you know, in, in that role. And then, you know, and then even in subsequent role or previous roles during university and the academic projects and things that I'd done. So yeah, I think I think that's an important part of it too. Were there any um, particular experiences or projects that you worked on uh, in that role that were most meaningful or, or perhaps gave you the most growth? We did uh, some fantastic work that we were very proud of in um, in London uh, at the time called the London Health Commission. So looking at how to leverage the, the body of policy within the London uh, mayor's office, actually, it was a collaboration between Imperial and uh, Professor Lord Ira Darcy that I was working for with uh, Boris Johnson at the time in his office. How can we leverage all the mechanics of policy at a at a mayoral level at a city the size of London with a sharp focus on improving healthcare outcomes and a kind of novel approach, right? It wasn't about strengthening the NHS per se. It wasn't about kind of, you know, funding or structure. It was about how do we leverage policy in, in its broadest sense Everything from time planning to education to, um, you know, how you commissioned fast food outlets, you know, across the city and how, where you positioned them next to educational institutions, you know, and how you thought about smoking policies and uh, green spaces um, and and the like, all, all, all towards better health outcomes at the population level. So that was just an incredibly fulfilling project because, again, in my capacity at the Institute and working with um, Lord Darcy, got to see the kind of broadest purview of how one can engage such a rich set of stakeholders across London, often with very different opinions and motivations and priorities, and navigate through to build consensus and alignment towards uh, policy change. And, you know, that was that was really satisfying and fun. And, you know, we had um, some good successes with with that effort um, over, over at Imperial. Um, so that, that was one, one project uh, that was particularly fun. It sounds like a fascinating project. Uh, I think as clinicians, we can often feel like we are kind of at the pointy end of the of the stick when it comes to policy. Um, with your experiences, I wondered, what would you love for clinicians to know more about policy so we can uh, be better collaborators and, and contributors? It's funny, that was, it was kind of exposure to policy was one of my very first kind of entrepreneurial things when I was a junior doctor. So I, I, I started working with this startup company that was building digital apps for healthcare systems and, you know, from GP practices to larger hospitals and was invited to join this kind of digital workshop at the NHS and some very senior bods were, uh, were, were hosting around kind of orthopedic patient pathways. And uh, I was the only junior doctor in the room. It was all kind of big wigs of the NHS. And there was me kind of a, a young uh, junior doctor uh, expecting to say very little in this room of like 15, 20 people when I, when I stepped in and very quickly you know, the, the, the topics and the subject matter and the pain points, it became clear that actually, as a junior doctor, being there on the ground, seeing some of the challenges in the patient workflow, in the kind of waiting times, in access to diagnostics and imaging and all the rest of it, um, and where there might be opportunities for improvement that digital could can have some role in, that, that actually my voice carried and, you know, those insights were, 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 were valuable. And that was a real eureka for me as a junior doctor, kind of recognizing, hey, actually my voice can have, you know, although I'm the most junior in this hierarchy of the NHS and the healthcare system, there's insights and kind of translation of insights into something bigger uh, that, that, that I could have an impact towards. So I, I would say that junior doctors can have significant contributions to make or doctors across the board 
Uh, I think it's about finding the right forums and, and, and places where to, to, to kind of have your voice heard and be able to contribute. I do also think that understanding how the healthcare system works, you're not trained in medical school, how technology is assessed and how reimbursement, you know, within NICE and all these other things really kind of moves the needle for patient outcomes over longitudinal periods of time. You know, med school, you're kind of learning just what is medicine today, but for your career, you need to know how it will evolve over a 20 year period. And I think some of those mechanics of policy um, how uh, you know care is commissioned, how public health you know intersects with the healthcare system. These things in a shifting kind of healthcare landscape, I think those are all very critical um, and would encourage. And, and I think I, you know I've been out of healthcare for uh, or the NHS at least uh, for for some years now, so I don't know the latest of education other things. But I certainly get the sense that doctors are much you know are clued into some of these policy shifts and. Um, you know, they've become, you know, more, uh, more savvy to that and, you know, how it's going to affect their careers and, and, and the rest of it, which I think is really positive because I think everyone in the healthcare system that's there working at the front uh, door should be contributing to that um, uh, discourse. I guess what I'm hearing is, is to, to encourage people to put their hand up, right, to, to put the uh, hand up to, to get involved in uh, some of these types of committees and um, to get their voice out so that they can not only understand the system, but then influence it. I guess I'd also add is that, you know, organizations and, and leaders uh, do need to recognize that frontline staff have a lot to offer. Uh, they are the, you know, the immune system of the, the organism or the, or, the, or the body of the um, organization. And so uh, you do need to listen to, to them and, uh, and provide space for those voices to come through. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So then I'd be curious to hear about your progression into the venture capital space. You know, I had had, and this is a theme, I think, from medicine to the policy role to, to venture capital, there, there's a similarity uh, had spent time looking at the micro, you know, as a doctor, you have to be thoughtful about the mechanism of action of a drug in the context of a patient and the diagnosis that's being made and how you know sick they are and you know their their path towards recovery. But you also need to think about the kind of socioeconomic state and macro of that patient, their family situation elsewhere. You know, are you going to get them well and they're going to go home into a, a, an environment that's only going to cause exacerbation and you know, uh, kind of being back in the same place? Are there opportunities to leverage other resources uh, within the healthcare system to, to, to improve upon that? So this idea of going from very small kind of scientific to the big picture um, policy for me was a layer above that, right? You know, how do you then think about the system and the structural elements of that um, to, you know, from a healthcare system? And in my role working at Imperial, had the opportunity to collaborate and work with uh, venture capitalists that take it, you know, an even other layer of what is the business model that's driving some of these economics that, that are driving the adoption of some of these technologies and uh, and and kind of the spread and and then therefore potentially the impact, especially when the decisions being governed from venture capitalists actually supporting those early stage innovations in the hope that they will go on to be successful, both from a patient impact perspective, as well as uh, from a financial perspective. So I'd had you know, broad exposure in that role and saw felt that my, my kind of passion for science with my passion for this bigger picture thinking um, would be you know, potentially well served in venture capital and uh, have had the, the fortune to collaborate with, with certain colleagues out in the Bay Area from GE Ventures, um, which was a corporate venture arm of General Electric, 
um, and, and had the opportunity to, to move out here to, to the Bay Area to, to kind of cut my teeth there for, you know, on the investing side. You also now are currently at Intuitive, obviously a company really well known for minimally invasive care, uh, robotic surgery. Tell me, how did that venture start and, and what was that experience like? So I'd, I'd been at GE Ventures uh, for a period of time learning how to invest, you know, the, 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 the approaches, the you know, much deeper integration into the healthcare system in the US and the, the kind of dynamics there and had got to know from a structural perspective how powerful corporate venture capital, so corporate venture capital versus traditional institutional financial VC is if it's NEA or Sequoia or Benchmark, these famous firms that you've heard of using just pure financial dollars to return more money. And they'll have a fee and a fee system approach, but you know, ultimately the primary goal is return more capital. In, in corporate venture capital, you have a, a corporate uh, company. In, in my case, you know, originally it was GE Ventures, but now here at Intuitive, Intuitive Surgical, as you described it, a kind of pioneer of surgical robotics, using capital available, made available from them to not just generate a financial value and return profile, but also to really um, drive some type of strategic endeavor. And uh, I can describe more about that, you know, and how we how we pursue advancing the field of minimum invasive care through our fund. And, you know, that um, the experience of GE Ventures of how to structure, how to align a team, how to make sure that a corporate venture fund is best positioned to achieve that dual aim of financial success and, you know, strategic success. Um, was uh, was was the opportunity to kind of translate that into a blank canvas at Intuitive, at a time when Intuitive Surgical was looking at how to best engage and support that ecosystem of technology developers, of startups, of entrepreneurs uh, that are really driving um, so much innovation around robotics and digital and therapeutics and diagnostics. And, and that we could help both accelerate, but also bring a bit closer to intuitive. And so that that was kind of the problem statement. And it was a very exciting proposition to, to come and you know, build something fit for purpose uh, to, to, to address that. And so that was that transition into intuitive four years ago and um, to, to launch intuitive ventures, um, which we've now had out there for about two and a half years at this point. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about just some basics uh, around venture capital, uh, the difference between that and private equity, uh, funding rounds, uh, those kinds of things that um, sometimes uh, don't necessarily get considered when we're talking about how uh, financial models can support innovation. So, so private equity is effectively the entire category of capital being deployed into private companies. So that would be any company that's not a um, a public entity um, that's gone through a, a public listing. So those that you see on, you know, the NASDAQ and uh, the, the FTSE 100, et cetera, these are companies that are public. Private equity is capital deployed into everything other than that. So, so venture capital is a sub-segment of private equity. Um, it is the earliest stage where um, you are really providing those high-risk, potentially high-rewards categories with of, sorry, of startups with with the capital. Traditionally, kind of how people differentiate, quote unquote, private equity from VC, even though VC is private equity, um, you might think of private equity as some of the later stage deals where you are taking more of a majority ownership in a company, um, potentially creating leverage on that by putting some equity in and you know, raising debt to 
to further enhance the economics of a given deal. Um, so that might be kind of later stage opportunities. And you, know, you get some funds that focus more on that later stage kind of pure private equity um, and others that are more on the venture capital end of the spectrum. So it's 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 sometimes seen as a spectrum, but in, in in other ways, it's it's kind of all the same. It's just slightly different strategies on how to deploy capital at these you know, private stage companies. You know, I think the primer you know on on, on venture capital is you know it's about deploying um, dollars into early stage companies to support them in a milestone based approach, uh, kind of fashion, right? So it's aligning uh, as much as possible the innovators, so those entrepreneurial teams whether they're academics or pure entrepreneurs um, that have identified a need and have started to build a technology and a business model and approach to satisfy that, venture capital comes in and you know, pro- you know, provides the, the dollars um, to support uh, acceleration and growth of that idea towards that next value inflection uh, milestone um, upon which uh, you know, it being achieved, and I can describe what that could look like, but once it is achieved, that you would then... Um, assume that the company will raise more capital to to pursue the next level of of, of innovation and milestones and um, to kind of track towards some grander, bigger impact. And, you know, there's a lot of different pools of capital available to support innovation. And venture capital is just one. And I think it's important to remind folks because the last two or three years, you'd think that venture capital was the only you know pool of capital available. And it's not the case. There's plenty of startups, companies, that don't need venture capital and shouldn't, you know, pursue it uh, for for their needs. But where where there's really big ideas that have potentially fast, you know, growth um, trajectories or can sustain the type of pace that venture capital, you know, traditionally looks to achieve, um, there's huge opportunity with the with the right capital, the right alignment. You know, to to support it going forward. It's slightly different between some of the domains in healthcare. So. In, in healthcare, you have traditionally digital uh, health, you'd have uh, biotech and life sciences, you'd have diagnostics, you'd have med tech. These might be entire ecosystems of sophisticated investors and capital that's focused on these um, these different groups. At Intuitive Ventures, we actually cut across all of those and invest in all those segments. But just to give you a sense that a digital health deal and how they raise capital and the pace and the metrics that kind of govern those milestones might look very different from a medical device company that's, you know, not going to be revenue generating for five to six years while they pursue their regulatory trajectory and their development uh, phases and the like. So for you, what do you look for in a company or a startup to illustrate that you, you know, you're interested? There's three, there's three main pillars, it, but it starts off with the need, you know, what what are they addressing? What can they articulate? And have they got a very clear strategy on how they are going to tackle something important in healthcare? So our fund Intuitive Ventures is focused on, as you described it, you know, accelerating the future of minimally invasive care. So this is the the, the journey for healthcare towards lower uh, lower impact interventions and better patient outcomes. Um, sur- robotic surgery is kind of one example of that trend being manifest in a technology company, and we're investing in you know the next twenty years of that and everything surrounding it to kind of achieve that aim. So, what we want first and foremost for our fund is someone that's got a clear articulation, a big need, and is going out to improve a patient outcome. Um, thereafter, you know, we want to see a team that is qualified or demonstrating the capacity to really 
deliver and execute on that strategy and that approach. And so that might be that they have a track record. That might be that they're just some super impressive, high energy, passionate, you know, founder that's driving, uh, you know, driving the bus here towards the the goal. But, you know, that, that, you know, really critical team that are, um, you know, making a, uh, taking a stance there, that there's uh, an exciting and differentiated and, you know, hopefully from a IP perspective, kind of protectable technology base that this team and, you know, this need is is kind of converging on to, to go tackle the opportunity. And so there, therefore, the technology becomes, you know, a very important pillar. Um, and then the last bucket is that this is, you know, a market that is monetizable and you know, of a scale and size that can absorb a company that's going to hopefully have a solid trajectory towards value creation revenue, ultimately, you know, down the line. So they're, they're kind of some of the broad buckets with which we look. But I, I'd say that patient outcome and, and need and um, you know, really having an impact on, on healthcare up front is, is the critical uh, first step for us to, to satisfy. Are there any sort of common mistakes that uh, maybe startups make in this space that can make them less appealing? There's, there's such a culture of selling and projecting in, in the world of startups and venture capital generally. And I think where I'm always impressed by founders and entrepreneurs is where there's a very honest reflection of the challenges and the realities of the market that they're going after to achieve. And there's a realism applied over their grandiose, you know, and lofty goals. And, you know, we all need the lofty goals and the grandiose vision to get excited and energized and, you know, pursue uh, where we're headed. But where, where you see entrepreneurs and, and, and CEOs sometimes stumble is kind of overselling a, uh, a vision or overselling a kind of a, a roadmap towards achieving that um, or, or hiding facts and things that, you know, would be otherwise in fairly plain sight to an investor that spends their day, day in, day out, kind of exposed to technologies and approaches in these fields. So, you know, that's, that's, it's maybe a subtle point, but I, I just think that that open and honest you know, reflection can be a really powerful, not just avoiding a negative, but actually can be a really powerful style uh, and, and, and kind of approach to really um, gain credibility with investors. In the space that you work in, I mean, is it common to have doctors in a role like yours? And what are the kinds of experiences or, or skills that you bring as being a doctor in this type of role? So, you know, it's not uncommon. There's certainly plenty of doctors in the kind of Bay Area, especially where there's a lot of concentration of healthcare, um, uh, you know, VCs and, and life sciences uh, VCs. You know, it's not the most common route into venture capital generally. Uh, you know, the, the financial training and business training of other, you know, pursuits and careers is what often kind of takes people into this sphere. On, on my team at Intuitive Ventures, there's four of us and two of us are clinicians, but both have spent plenty of time um, exposed to more business pursuits um, or technology in a deep in a deep way. I don't think there's a single background of a, of a venture capitalist you know that, that that is right or wrong. I think my impression is that it's someone that's curious to a, a significant a ridiculous degree that is a driver of pushing things forward so not, not satisfied with status quo. Um, and can kind of execute and operate, kind of use the two sides of the brain, be creative and and kind of join dots, but also execute and push things forward that makes, you know, a, a good venture capitalist. And then that kind of foundation being 
paired with a set of experiences that gives them unique insights from technology or a market or a set of stakeholders. To me, that's that's a you know pretty winning combination. I certainly spend a lot of my time applying what I've learned in healthcare. As I mentioned, going small to big, that was a big part of it. The content, um, you know, the subject matter, but also I'd say the communication piece. You know, something that's not talked a lot about. I think about venture capital that actually has quite a lot of parallel with clinical medicine is the communication side. You know, in, in, in medicine, that bedside manner of influencing a patient's journey and their interpretation of health information, kind of how they experience the journey for their healthcare, how their family experience it. You know, those things are pretty awesome and unique skills that you're trained in as a doctor. And actually in venture capital, you spend a lot of time having to quite quickly build trust and a connection with entrepreneurs and co-investors and the like. And then you have to kind of test that relationship through a diligence process where you're kind of at odds and you're trying to find out as much pressure, test and probe. And then thereafter, hopefully once you've done the deal, rebuild and regain that that kind of positive momentum because you're 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 married thereafter and you're kind of on this journey together. And I think that's another piece of clinical practice that's actually something I really enjoyed and loved when I was practicing uh, medicine that I think you can really put into practice in, in, in venture capital. Obviously, starting a fund in 2019 and going into a global pandemic and uh, a number of you know economic pressures, uh, I imagine. How did that fare for you? And were there more challenges or, or opportunities that sprung out of um, that dynamic time? Yes, it certainly was. Uh, you know, I joined Intuitive in 2019 to to kind of build a strategy around you know ventures, and we were going to our internal stakeholders to you know ask for the money uh, to kind of launch our our first fund just as the uh, pandemic was kicking off. And I was obviously nervous that you know that that would be a natural time to take pause on these strategies and the like when the world is seemingly falling apart and you don't know how the markets etc are going to go but intuitive as a company and this is testament to the leadership who are the entrepreneurs that's you know the engineers and entrepreneurs that actually started the company 25 years ago who have a very entrepreneurial spirit and uh, they saw that actually in times of hesitancy in the market of uncertainty leaders lean in and they assert themselves and they you know flex and they find opportunity and I was just blown away by Intuitive's commitment to doing that, you know, in the time of pretty significant uncertainty with the start of the pandemic. And and that manifests into, you know, really pursuing this venture strategy, deploying capital, you know, getting into to early stage companies. I, I will say, so we got started and uh, I will say that fast forward three months, our thesis at the time of, look, there'll be loads of, you know, well-priced deals because it's a pandemic and, you know, the markets are going to crater uh, soon <laughs> flipped into, you know, wow, this is the kind of hottest period ever for investing. And, you know, valuations are crazy. And, you know, this is hyper, hyper competitive market. And that was its own kind of set of challenges and and opportunities. And, and we were very, very, um, uh, and, well, we continue to be, we have a high bar for deploying any capital. And when we anchored ourselves in valuations for the few deals that we did do at kind of the height of the market trends that were happening in 2021, 20, uh, 2022, and, and kind of probably deployed slower than others would have thought that we should be as a new fund and given kind of the heat around the market. Counter that with where we've seen, you know, the the more recent market downturn and the, the, the kind of economic environment. I think there's opportunity and there's opportunity in, in two two streams. One is an investor because 
you know, valuations are going down and, you know, there's much more sensible dynamics there for deploying capital. But I, I think more importantly for the innovation ecosystem and for the opportunity to have an impact in healthcare, you know, the best ideas are bubbling up. People are spending the time to really understand business models, understand technologies, make sure the right teams are, you know, driving forward. And so good companies are still getting capital. And I think some of the less value-add investors that had played a big role in the valuation upswings and the kind of market froth of 2021, 2022, they've they've walked away, right? Many of them have, have, have departed the scene. Um, and, you know, that's obviously creating a challenge for many startups that, that, that did receive capital from some of those funds or that, you know, are finding it hard to justify valuations and things now. But I think it means that for for this market and for the go forward, investors that can bring a point of view value add beyond just pure capital, you know, a deep understanding of an industry and a market, that that can be a win-win for both the market and for uh, the startups. So, you know, I think in, in this market, we're leaning in, you know, we're, 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 we're really continuing to accelerate our, um, our strategy. We closed the deal just in the last couple of days. Um, you know, we closed four deals at the end of last year. Um, so, you know, we're, we're excited about supporting because there's still a lot to, to solve in healthcare. Yes, yes, the work's not done. It is really interesting to hear from uh, from other industries how uh, the COVID pandemic was felt and, and how just the ways it's expressed itself and how you need to be prepared and, and be able to adapt. I'd be curious to know about the philosophy that's taken when investing in different companies given potential conflicts of interest or the way that incentives around financial outcomes can maybe distort uh, what the actual gain is from a particular company? Yeah, no, no, for sure. So uh, I think of it from kind of a, the venture structural and then the the, the the areas and themes that we actually you know invest in. So when we started Intuitive Ventures, and I mentioned that strategic and financial kind of dual goal at the beginning, we, we purposefully created a structure where by my team, is firewalled off from the rest of Intuitive Proper um, in terms of information sharing, but also uh, that we have a, uh, an a set of incentives that aligns us to the financial success of the companies that we're investing in. And so from a conflicts perspective, it's it's interesting because it, um, it, it, it's been the most powerful lever for us to align and gain credibility with the, the startups and the entrepreneurs and the co-investors that we're investing alongside because they know that my investment from Intuitive Ventures it comes with me and my team being as aligned and motivated to see their financial success. And that puts us at odds in a kind of conflict perspective with actually our corporate parent. But that has been baked in so that, again, the startups know that it's not the overarching goals of the corporate parent in a particular space that is driving the behaviors and the value add and the rationale for pursuing an investment. So it's, it's a subtlety there, but that's been really important for us at Intuitive Ventures. And, you know, I think is really best in class um, to, 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 to make sure that a corporate venture fund uh, operates and, 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 you know, performs its best. On the startup side and what we go out and invest in from a healthcare economics, uh, you know, perspective, we, you know, I think the opportunity in healthcare from a VC perspective is, and this doesn't exist in other industries, there's ripe opportunity to have a kind of win-win-win, right? Great patient outcomes, great financial 
um, outcome. And I think if you buy in, and this is certainly what we do, to a view that the world is moving towards better outcomes, at lower cost of care, that technology is going to drive some of these shifts um, in the healthcare system, that pursuing anything that other than a better outcome at a lower cost is unethical or or at least is, you know, not not a kind of sustainable advantage, you know, in the long term. And so we have a very clear mandate and, and philosophy. We call it the quadruple aim. The startups we invest in, um, you know, need to elicit that outcome, lower cost of care, better experience and a health equity improvement for for our deals. And so that that that's what drives us. And we would shy away from anything that was just increasing cost or, you know, creating some kind of perverse incentives to to drive a shorter term economic outcome that might be, you know, might be a great financial venture investment. But, you know, for us, it doesn't align to our philosophy and um, our, our mission. And uh, I'll be curious to hear about how the sort of accountability to that philosophy uh, works. Yeah, so we, we, we have it actually as like a formal filter in the startups that we look at. So it's part of our our pipeline and our deal flow process to, to kind of ensure that we're achieving that bar and making sure that this is kind of something that's headed in the direction of value-based care and these outcomes. Um, and then we have an investment committee um, that, that, that equally kind of holds us accountable for the portfolio and the mission and the, the direction of travel of the investments that we're making. So I, th- I think they're two of the most important uh, levers. And then for me, it's about, you know, hiring a team, of people and you know working together with a very clear shared um, set of values and principles and at the end of the day venture capital is a small industry it's very reputation driven i you know it's also really cozy and collaborative uh, you know industry where a lot of different venture funds and groups actually do proactively syndicate and collaborate on deals and opportunities and i think just on the top of my head it, it's a shared view right across uh, the, the the ecosystem um, of 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 quality investors in healthcare um, on the VC side, and so you know that's something that we look to as well, who we partner with. Do you think there are any opportunities in the sort of policy space that may you know enhance the um, access to capital for types of organisations or products that are targeted uh, to reduce uh, inequities? I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for that. It's interesting. I you know, spent some time in the UK just in the last week and um, the government there is really trying to understand ways to accelerate access to capital and, you know, the innovation ecosystem um, in the country. I think, you know, there's always carrot and stick around policies, right? And I think in, in areas where equity has been lacking from a, a kind of historical perspective, making sure that from a regulatory perspective, as an example, data sets and other things are mandated to include representative populations. Um, th- these types of things can go a long way towards actually setting a standard forcing function for, for the industry. I think opportunities from a, you know, tax credits and R&D credits and things like that for companies that are proactively going into areas or tackling systemic challenges and issues with business models and startups and innovation can be a, an intriguing carrot to kind of guide people towards areas that need more attention, more effort. So, you know, I think between those two different styles, uh, there, there's definitely a lot of opportunity um, to approve upon. Uh, and, it, and it's so critical, you know, uh, to, to the industry going forward. So you've recently been back in, in the NHS. How do you contrast the work that you're doing in the US with what the UK is doing? 
you know, at, at the end of the day, I think the successful business models that are, you know, we're excited to invest in in the US um, have broad applicability um, internationally. And so the, the companies that we're investing in um, would, I would put through a similar filter of what, their applicability. And, and many of our startups are actually looking to the UK and other um, kind of uh, single payer systems and the like to um, you know, as, as a market and opportunity as they build that health economic uh, kind of rationale and evidence base. I think there's, although not in this current market, but, you know, with trends for innovation and technology adoption in the US, it means that there's often a kind of quicker uptake and more experimentation with early stage technologies, um, whereas the bar can be higher in the UK for some of that. We invest in the UK, we invest internationally. I would say the flip of what I just said is that some of the innovation coming in out, out of the UK at an early stage can be so sophisticated as it relates to evidence generation, health, you know, value economics of uh, interventions, of digital tools, of products um, that you might not see until a much later stage company in the US. And, and that's really exciting because sometimes there's, you know, we invest in a company called Optelum out of the UK that's an AI tool for lung cancer identification um, at an earlier stage. You know, they have a really deep reimbursement strategy and coding strategy both in the, you know, the UK and the US for a stage of development that, uh, you know, is much more advanced than, than maybe similar companies um, uh, in, in the US. So, you know, there's, there's opportunities between the two. We're, we're excited to invest equally, uh, you know, in, in, in the US and internationally and spending a lot more time in Europe because there's significant innovation here um, and, and, and often more challenged access to capital. Um, and we, we think we can bridge some of that. My final question is just around advice you might have for clinicians who are perhaps considering a transition into becoming an investor or an entrepreneur. Where would you sort of point them to start in terms of uh, learning more and, and gaining some experience? I would say build a network. You know, so much of career outside of medicine, I, I think inside of medicine too, is is the network that you've built and propagated. It's the relationships and the knowledge um, I'd say, you know, build, proactively build a network in the areas that you're interested and passionate about, whether that's technology or venture capital or new clinical areas and um, get smart. You know, there's a set of skills outside of clinical practice that, you know, you just aren't exposed to if you've pursued a pure path clinical career and um, finance, you know, business operations, um, you know, kind of le- learn, be a be a student of some of these topics that are outside of our kind of day to day. You know, even if it's just becoming more uh, more fluent in the language rather than being an expert in the content, I think that goes a long way. And then you know, find mentorship. I think that's been a big part of my career. And um, you know, finding mentorship is it, it's kind of a dual relationship. You know, it's not just about extracting value from someone senior it's about kind of building a relationship understanding what they're trying to achieve um and uh but but seeking it and being a good you know mentor uh being, being a good mentee um to to those mentors so you know they, they would be my three bits of advice um you know for those and and be open to taking risk because i think uh you got to take a bit of risk in in your career if you want to you know make uh, make some changes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Oliver Kion. Uh, I really appreciate uh, all of those insights. Delighted to be here. Thank you so much, and um, looking forward to to following the podcast and listening to some of your other uh, interviews. And that brings us to the end of the podcast. If you want to go deeper about any of these topics or join the discussion, visit our website, clinicalchangemakers.com. Now, one small ask: this is a brand new podcast. 
So if you enjoyed our work, please rate us and share it with your friends and colleagues. Until next time, take care.